Let me encourage you now to turn to the Old Testament prophecy of Zephaniah and to the third chapter. If you turn back to Matthew where we read before, you'll be at the beginning of the New Testament. And if you work your way backward into the Old, you'll hit Malachi and then Zechariah and then Haggai and then Zephaniah chapter 3. And as we turn there, let's also turn our hearts to the Lord for his help. Father, we pray tonight as we sang that you would help us to find out the greatness of your loving heart, of your son's loving heart, and that we would have a heart to tell of that greatness to our neighborhood and to the nations. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why Zephaniah tonight uh, might be your question, or any night for that matter. Zephaniah is uh, uh, an unusual place for us to turn, perhaps. But last week, I spent a good bit of time thinking and praying about what might be next for us on Wednesday nights. Uh, We were a long time in the book of Revelation, and I was focused completely there on, on getting through to the end, and I hadn't thought deeply about what might be next for us. Uh, And as I looked to make some plans for Wednesdays this fall, two factors came together in my mind. One uh, is that as I looked at our schedule, I noticed that our Wednesdays are going to be a bit scattered. There are 15 Wednesdays between now and the end of the year, including tonight. Uh, Two of them will be holidays when we have no service. Three of those we get to hear Mark preach from Jonah. Uh, One is a QA, and a One uh, we will hear Charles speak one uh, we will take one of our Sunday morning gospel portraits and move it to a Wednesday night and so uh, as the schedule unfolded it appeared to me that I wouldn't have a long stretch of continuity during which I might sink my teeth into a consecutive book study like we did in Revelation or Ezra before that just a few scattered Wednesdays here and there Um, so I thought perhaps we need just a few individual sermons here and there and at the same time Uh, As I looked over what I had preached uh, in recent weeks and months, uh, and then even further back, looking at what I preached in the entire time I've been here, um, I was surprised to find that there are fully seven books of the Bible that I've never preached from even once since I've been here. Uh, We've worked our way through 28 different Bible books, chapter by chapter, beginning to end. We have heard sermons, and I've preached sermons from 31 other books scattered here and there, but there are seven books, all of them the Old Testament, that I've never preached from since I've been here, and uh, those books, in case you're wondering, are Joshua, 1 Chronicles, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Nahum, and Zephaniah. So I thought, I have a few Wednesdays here and there, I have a few books that I've never preached from, why not preach one sermon each? from those seven books over these scattered Wednesday nights. Uh, One or two of these books we may pick up in our Sunday morning Gospel Portraits series, but the rest, uh, Lord willing, we will pick up here and there on various Wednesday nights throughout the fall. And uh, I'm thinking of these sermons in my mind as the missing books. So if you want to tell yourself, what are we studying on Wednesdays again? Oh yeah, the missing books, the books that we've never yet studied from. And we begin tonight with the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, and I'd like to read to you from verses 8 to 13. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness, 
Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. In that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Now that first verse in the passage, verse 8, I think fairly sums up the first two and a half chapters of this book of Zephaniah that we haven't read. This book, as we read verse 8, is largely a book about the day when God rises up as a witness, when his decision will be to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out on them his indignation, all his burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of his zeal. That's what this book, up until this point, has been all about. It's largely an announcement of God's judgment on the nations. And if you were to read Zephaniah, and I hope that you will at some point, you will see, first of all, that God says in chapter 1 that he is going to stretch out his hand against Judah and Jerusalem, against his own covenant Old Testament people, punishing them, uh, verses 4 and 5, for their mixture of idolatry with biblical faith, punishing them, chapter 1, verse 9, for their violence and their deceit, Punishing them, chapter 1, verse 12, for their spiritual complacency. Listen to this. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit. Perhaps that's a good word for some of us. God detests when we are stagnant in spirit. And then in chapter 2, not only does the Lord say he will judge his own covenant people, but he also says he will judge the pagan nations as well. In fact, if you turn to chapter 2, you can just follow along with me briefly. Verse 4, for Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the sea coast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant That's Philistia. Then verses 8 and 9, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. And then verses 12 and 13, he expands the circle of his judgment even further. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation parched like the wilderness. As I said, all that we have just 
uh, overseen in chapters 1 and 2, all that we've just reviewed, is summarized when we come to our text tonight in chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations. We read that. To assemble kingdoms. We read that. To pour out my indignation and all my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. This is a book about the great day of God's judgment. That's the primary theme as you read through the book of Zephaniah. And the reason that's the primary theme is because this prophet, Zephaniah, was living in the 600s B.C., surrounded by great paganism in all the countries that he mentioned in chapter 2, which paganism the people of God were also adopting and mixing in with their own religion. So Zephaniah's day was a time of great moral and spiritual desolation in the world and a time of great moral and spiritual decline even in Judah and Jerusalem as they became more and more like the nations around them. And so God's word to the people of that day inside Judah and outside Judah was a word of judgment, a word of wrath, a word of fury, first of all against Judah and Jerusalem and then against the nations. And that wrath and fury against Judah and Jerusalem was at least in a preliminary form fulfilled when about 40 or 50 years after Zephaniah wrote these words, Judah was carried into exile in Babylon. That was the beginnings of God's judgments. But as we just read in chapter 3, verse 8, that exile of God's people for 70 years can't have been the ultimate fulfillment of Zephaniah's words here. Because here in verse 8, we're told that all the earth will be called to account. All the earth will be devoured by the fire of God's great zeal. And that hasn't happened yet, has it? We're still awaiting that great day. So the book of Zephaniah really then is about God's hatred of sin and about his final judgment of sinners among all the nations. My decision, chapter 3, verse 8, is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. These words will ultimately be fulfilled, won't they, as we read in the book of Revelation. When the Son of Man comes with the clouds, when he comes riding on a white horse and stands on Mount Zion and treads out the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. That's when these words will be fulfilled, when all the earth will be devoured by the fire of his zeal at the coming of Christ, just as we've been seeing, as I said, in the book of Revelation. But then I want you to notice in verse 9 and continuing really through the end of the book that the tone of God's voice changes very dramatically from judgment to mercy. Did you notice that? There's all this judgment in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. But in verse 9, everything changes 180 degrees, it would seem. Yes, the great day of the Lord is coming with great wrath and fire and indignation. But it will also be, verse, day, verse 9, a day when the peoples of the earth, not just the Israelites, but the peoples, you see there, plural, of the earth will call on the name of the Lord, verse 9. It will be a day when the peoples of the earth, verse 10, will bring him offerings. 
It will be a day when the peoples of the earth, verse 11, will feel the shame of their sin no longer. It will be a day when the peoples of the earth will take refuge in the name of the Lord their God. It will be a day, verse 13, when the peoples of the earth will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. In other words, in that great day of God's judgment, there will be a remnant on which he shows mercy. In that great day, there will be a gathering of people who've been redeemed from their futile ways of life, who've been forgiven of their sins, who've been washed from their shame, who have been made new by the Holy Spirit, and who will be gathered together on God's holy mountain to be always with the Lord. And if that's what Zephaniah is about, then it's a good reminder that the minor prophets aren't nearly as difficult as we sometimes think they are. The book of Zephaniah is simply stating the same truths that we know so well from the New Testament. The day of the Lord is coming when he will judge all of his enemies and when he will also rescue his remnant, his people, and they will be always with the Lord. That's the book of Zephaniah. That's the whole Bible, isn't it? And we find the same thing here in this book. God will judge his enemies God will rescue his remnant. And this evening, now as we focus in on the passage at hand, I want us to think for the rest of our time about that remnant that God will show mercy to in verses 9 through 13, about that remnant that he will gather to his holy mountain in the last day. I want us to think about that remnant, and I want us specifically to think about the promise that God makes concerning that remnant in verse 10. From Beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. That's a promise. That will happen. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. And I want us to think about that promise this evening just under two headings. The first thing worth noticing tonight is the breadth of this promise. The breadth of the promise. The wideness of the promise. These people whose unclean lips, verse 9, are purified so that they can praise the living God. These people, verse 11, who no longer have to feel the shame of their sins. These humble and lowly people who will forever take refuge in the Lord, verse 12, and who won't lie or sin any longer. These people, where do they all come from? Well, the answer in verse 10 is straightforward, isn't it? They come from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. Now, as you might imagine, any time the word Ethiopia appears on the pages of Scripture, it catches my eye particularly, both because I have a personal acquaintance with that place and those people, Um, but also because many of us, not just myself, but many of us have long prayed for the modern-day country of Ethiopia. So I noticed that verse for this reason, but why does God use Ethiopia particularly as a point of demarcation when he speaks about the distant lands from which his remnant will come? Why does he use Ethiopia? It gets my attention, but it wouldn't get everyone's attention like it gets mine. So why does God particularly use this nation? Well, remember the list of nations and cities that God said he would judge in chapter 2? 
There was Gaza, there was Ashkelon, there was Ashdod, there was Ekron, Moab, Ammon, Assyria, Nineveh, and Ethiopia. Which one of those places, if we had a map in front of us, which one of those places is the remotest from Israel? Which one of those nations that God lists in chapter 2 is the farthest away from his people? Well, it's Ethiopia. Ethiopia, for the people of Judah, was weeks and weeks away, walking across a seemingly endless desert. So this phrase, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, may have seemed almost unfathomable to Zephaniah's first readers. Ethiopia was far enough. It's like the end of the world almost. But to go even beyond Ethiopia would have been, for these people, unimaginable. It's like when someone starts explaining to us exactly how far away the moon is. The numbers don't really mean anything, do they? Because we have no concept of hundreds of thousands of miles. That means nothing to us. We've never traveled that far. We've never been anywhere near that far. And neither would Zephaniah's readers have been most of them. And so they probably felt like we feel when we start hearing these astronomical numbers about space. They would have said to themselves, beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, I have no idea how far that is. In fact, it's also worth noting that not only is the African interior beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, extremely far away if you live in ancient times from Israel. But it's also worth remembering that the inner portions of Africa, the interior of Africa, was not successfully charted and mapped for anyone from the outside world until David Livingston, the missionary, did it 150 years ago. It wasn't until the 1800s A.D. that anyone from the outside world really knew what was beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And so if it was confusing for people in the 1800s to think about the heart of Africa, how much more for people in the Old Testament? And so how could an Old Testament Israelite possibly get his head around this idea that people will come, quote, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia? How could he even fathom that? Well, I think that's just the point. I think that's exactly the point. I think God is reminding his people here in verse 10 that his kingdom is far wider than they can possibly imagine. That's the breadth of this promise. God, in verse 10, says, I want you to think about as far away as you can imagine geographically and culturally. And then he says, I want you to know that my remnant is going to come from even farther away than that. When I bring my final remnant home, declares the Lord to his Old Testament saints through the prophet Zephaniah, they won't simply come from the towns of Judah and Israel. They won't even be limited, he's saying to your near neighbors, the Philistines and the Moabites and so on, that you've come in contact with in your homeland. No, God is saying in this verse, my kingdom is far broader, far greater than that. For when it's all said and done, my worshipers will come from Ethiopia and they will come even from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. I will be worshiped by all the nations, he's saying to them, even people that you've never seen and you can't imagine exist. That's the significance of this phrase, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. God's kingdom is far broader, far wider, far bigger, far greater than we can imagine. And his people will finally be gathered from the remotest parts of the earth, from 
far-flung destinations and locations that we can't even fathom. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. Now, we have a, a slight advantage over the Old Testament Jews, don't we, in understanding this concept of the breadth of God's kingdom. Because not only do we live in the New Testament era in which the gospel has spread so rapidly among the Gentiles, but we also live even more than that, or in addition to that, we live in the age of jet travel. So that we get sometimes to meet people who come, as it were, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. The heart of Africa is not nearly as remote to us as it would have been to them. But I want you to remember that eternity, even with all the diversity that we know in our world, eternity will still be far more diverse than we can possibly imagine. Even in our small world, with all the technology that we have that brings cultures together, even in this world that we live in, the members of God's kingdom, which we're mostly acquainted with, look usually still, for the most part, a lot like ourselves. Our skin color may be different, but we all wear the same clothes, we all speak the same language, we all sing the same songs. And those aren't bad things, of course. And even in our church, where we're privileged to have on any given Sunday three or four different nationalities represented, represented and several others throughout the years, we still haven't seen anything yet. I think that's the significance of this phrase from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. You think you know how big my kingdom is. You think you can imagine how diverse heaven will be. But God is saying to his people and to us, you haven't seen anything yet. And so for us, this phrase from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, for us to fathom that, what we would need to do and what we do need to do is think of every remote place you know of in the world. Think of those places that to you seem like they're at the end of civilization. And picture those people who seem as far away from you as any people could possibly be worshiping at the feet of Jesus. They will be. Isn't that a wonderful thought? But far more wonderful is the thought that they will come even from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, even from beyond what is to you and me the known world. We can think of what seems to us the end of the world, and there are people who are even more remote than that. How broad is this promise in Zephaniah 3.10? How broad is his kingdom? The Israelites would have said, wow, it'll be amazing that all these Ethiopians, all these remote people will be in the kingdom. But God is saying, there are people that you've never even thought of, and they'll be there as well. And so for us, we can say with even a lot more clarity there are 16,300 ethno-linguistic people groups on planet Earth. 16,300 distinct groups of people who are different from other groups based on their culture or their geography or their language. They are their own little culture. 16,300 of them. And if you were to put a world map in front of me and give me an hour or two to study the map, I could maybe think up couple hundred of those people groups, mostly the obvious ones like, well, there are the Germans and uh, the Canadians and so on. I could maybe put together 200. 
But even though I've never heard of them, the other 16,000 plus will be in heaven as well. And when I think of that, I begin to understand what this phrase means. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, from places that you don't even know exist, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. There are groups of people that you and I have never heard of, nestled along riverbanks or in mountain ranges that we don't even know exist, speaking languages that we've never heard, and God is at work among those people. And God will have his remnant from among those people. That's what Zephaniah is saying here. For didn't Jesus, Revelation 5, purchase for God with his blood men from every tongue and tribe and people and nation? He did, didn't he? And because he did, God's worshipers will come from all sorts of little nooks and crannies in the globe that we can't even fathom. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers will come. It will happen. Now, doesn't that broaden our horizons? This breadth of this promise, the breadth of the kingdom of God, doesn't it broaden the way we think about the world? I hope it does. Don't promises like this in the Bible change the way we view, quote, foreigners? Don't they change the way we watch the news? All of a sudden, Benghazi and Libya and Syria and Cairo and all these places become vitally important to us because we have brothers and sisters there. Or if we don't yet have brothers and sisters there, we will. China becomes not simply a country for us to fear or a country for us to grumble about because they've imported so many American jobs, but it becomes a place from which we know God's worshipers will bring their offerings. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia and from beyond the Yellow Sea, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. Zephaniah 3.10 ought to give new breath to the way we see the world. And it ought to give new breath to our prayers as well. If God is calling his people from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, if we have brothers and sisters beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, then we ought to pray for the regions beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And in that regard, I can do no better for you than to recommend that every single one of you, if you haven't already, purchase this book, Operation World by Jason Mandrick. I've recommended it before. Uh, And some of you have it, and some of you need to have it. He gives you every day of the year a country or a region to pray for. All sorts of statistics about who's there and how many Christians and how many Muslims and, and what they believe and how many of them are literate and what their economic situation is and reasons to thank the Lord for what is happening gospel wise in that country and then always several ways to pray different people groups to pray for different events different things to pray for in every country on the planet all 16,300 people groups in the countries that they're in you can find something maybe not about every people group but certainly about every country in this this book and I hope that some of you will pick this up and that you will use it Uh, on a regular basis to pray. I have it, I enjoy it, and I don't use it nearly as often as I should. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, Zephaniah says, God says, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings, and we ought to pray for them. And if we're going to spend eternity with these happy brothers and sisters from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, then that ought not only to change the way we view 
our world here and now, not only to change the way we pray for those people here and now, but it also means that some of us will want to go beyond the rivers of Ethiopia to bring Christ to those people. For though verse 10 is an absolute promise, though these worshipers, God says, will come from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, they will not do so until someone goes to them with the good news of Jesus. If they are going to come from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia to God's holy mountain, some of us will have to go beyond the rivers of Ethiopia to win them to Christ. And I've posed this possibility many times before, and I pose it again tonight. I wonder how many people, even in a small gathering, how many people might be listening to my voice right now? Some of them adults, some of them young people, some of them children, perhaps some who are listening to us on the World Wide Web. I wonder how many people who can hear my voice right now, God will call to go beyond the rivers of Ethiopia to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. It may be some of you children. It may be some of you adults. And if God is calling you, then you must go. You get to go. And if you go, you can't help but succeed. Because the promise is, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. And that fact, that the cause of missions will succeed, brings us to our second point. We've thought about the breadth of this promise, but we need, before we leave tonight, to think about the certainty of this promise. The certainty of it. It may not seem certain to us that all the peoples of the earth are going to come to worship the Lord. In fact, it certainly doesn't seem certain to us, as Mark said earlier, when we just look at the circumstances around us. In fact, I just want you to imagine for a moment Zephaniah's contemporaries. Just imagine reading this book as it first came off of his pen. And you imagine there's some young man sitting in in the crowd as this book is read or as Zephaniah preached it the first time. And he thinks about what's said here, that God's worshipers are going to come from all of these places. And he takes the verse to its logical conclusion. And he determines that he's going to go beyond the rivers of Ethiopia so that the people there might hear about the one true God and hear about the Messiah and hear about God's power to change and to forgive. And he is going to preach so that people will come from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia to worship the Lord. And I want you to picture how difficult it would have been for that young man. Geographically, it would have seemed nearly impossible, as we said already, for him to think about going to Ethiopia and then beyond Ethiopia into the heart of the unknown. Linguistically, it would have been challenging. It's hard to learn a new language, isn't it? Culturally, it would have been daunting for that young man as well. How am I going to fit in with these people? How do I know what they'll even be like when I get there? Will they want me to come? Will they be hostile towards me? All sorts of difficulties. And they're really the same difficulties that modern missionaries face too, aren't they? 
I know we have airplanes, and so it's a lot easier to get to Congo now than it would have been in Zephaniah's day. We have Rosetta Stone, so you can pop that into your CD-ROM, and you can learn a language much more easily than people could in years past, even up to the last few decades. Yes, we also have much more cultural overlap in the world today, so it's not nearly as difficult to go from America to Africa now as it would have been a long time ago. But it's still very difficult, isn't it, for a family to pick up stakes move a wife and children beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, learn a new language, immerse yourself in a new culture, and try to explain Jesus to people who maybe have never heard of him, and maybe they have heard of them, him, and they don't want you to come. It doesn't seem very likely that this prospect could succeed. And so when I said to you that if you go, you can't help but succeed, I hope I wasn't being pie in the sky. In fact, I know I wasn't being pie in the sky. I know that if God is calling you to move beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, it will be incredibly challenging. And yet I also know what this verse promises. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings, says the Lord. So if we will pray, and if we will give to those who go, and if some of us go ourselves, God will work. There's an undeniable certainty in this promise. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers will bring my offerings. And yet there are all sorts of obstacles. But do you know what is the greatest obstacle to the missionary and to the gospel spreading beyond the rivers of Ethiopia? Do you know what is the thing that makes this success of the gospel seem least likely to us? If we know our Bibles and if we know ourselves and if we know the world? The greatest obstacle for a missionary is not the distance from home, not the culture, not the language, not the kind of food that they're going to feed you. The greatest difficulty a missionary faces when he goes beyond the rivers of Ethiopia is the human heart the human heart the lost people who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia have sinful hearts they like worshipping Allah they want to be Buddhists they want to be Hindus or they enjoy the materialism that western godlets have brought to them That's the reason why all these nations, including our own, are going to be assembled, verse 8, before God's judgment seat. Because human beings love our sin. And that's true, not only beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, but along the banks of the Ohio, too, is it not? How hard is it to get rich Americans into heaven? And nearly all of us, as an aside, are filthy rich in comparison with the peoples who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. How hard is it to get people in this culture where we have all of our needs met to come to Jesus? Well, Jesus says it's harder than getting a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's how hard it is. There's no counting, just for example, there's no counting how many people over the last 10 years have come into, the go- come into contact with the gospel through this church? As you witness to them in your workplace, as we go out into the neighborhoods, as they come onto our website, as they come into our building, there's no counting how many people have heard the gospel through this church. But there is counting, and only on one hand, the number of true converts whom we've baptized and who have actually stuck. On one hand, they can be counted. Why is that? 
Is our gospel defective? I don't think it is. Is it that we need to be more aggressive in our witness and perhaps more holy in our testimony? That's part of it, I think. But there's a larger problem that makes our work so often so slow, and that is the simple fact that according to the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah, the nations, including our own nations, nation, don't love God. Jeremiah says it like this, the heart is desperately sick. Paul says it like this, the natural man is not able to receive the things of God. The natural lips of man don't want to praise God. We want to praise anyone but God. And that makes the task of proclaiming the good news beyond the rivers of Ethiopia or even along the banks of the Ohio incredibly daunting and usually slow and plotting unless God is working in unusual ways. Human beings, when left to our own devices, don't want Jesus. Human beings don't want to sing to him. They don't want to pray to him. They don't want to do what verse 10 says they will do. But again, with all of that in front of us as realistic, note well the certainty of this promise. Human beings don't want to worship God. They don't want to bring their offerings to God. They don't want to praise the name of the Lord. But the promise is true. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. They don't yet want to worship the Lord, but someday they will. For God, verse 9, will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. God will give them lips and hearts that want to praise the Lord and serve the Lord. Isn't that amazing? That's what the preaching of the gospel does. That's what happens when we go out, whether beyond the rivers of Ethiopia or along the banks of the Ohio, proclaiming to men and women, verse 11, that God can take away their shame, the shame of their rebellion. When we go out proclaiming that the blood of Jesus really does cleanse us from all sin, when we go out proclaiming that there is forgiveness with God, that he may be feared, when we go out proclaiming that message, sometimes by ones and twos and very slowly, and every now and again in great revival, God does make worshipers out of one-time idolaters. God does purify people's lips. He does enlighten their hearts. He does rejoice their souls by the good news of Jesus so that even from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, they will come and worship the Lord. And if you wonder if he really does do that, just look at the mirror when you get home tonight. Didn't God do that for you? Haven't you seen Zephaniah 3.10 come to life in your own experience? It doesn't really matter who you are. There was a time in your life where you didn't want to call on the name of the Lord. There was a time in your life where you didn't want to worship him with your offerings or with your lips. For some of us who grew up hearing the gospel all of our lives, that time in our lives was when we were children in church. And our parents made us come. They made us come on Wednesday nights of all things. And they made us sing and they made us pray before we ate our supper every night. And they made us recite memory verses. And we would have rather been using our lips to say anything or do anything else than singing songs about God. We would rather been talking about anything else than having to pray at supper. So many other things on our minds. And yet God changed our minds 
and our hearts and our lips. For some of us, though, the desire to be anywhere but in the house of God and to sing anyone else's songs, but the songs of God continued well into adulthood, didn't it? But when, whatever it was or whenever it happened, the fact is you and I are no different by nature than the people who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Apart from Christ, we were like the prophet in Isaiah 6, men of unclean lips, living among people of unclean lips. But when Christ comes, verse 9, he gives people purified lips. So that they want to call on the name of the Lord. They want to worship him. Verse 10. They want, verse 10, to bring his offerings. Has Christ done that for you? Has he, verse 9, given you purified lips that you want to call on the name of the Lord? For many of you, he has. Has Jesus, to put it back in Isaiah's words from Isaiah 6, has Jesus taken a live coal from the altar where the lamb was slain for sinners and applied it to your lips and said to you, your iniquity has been taken away and your sin has forgiven? Has he, verse 11, covered your shame? Then if he has, must you not say with Isaiah again, here am I. Send me. He may send you to share Jesus with the people of unclean lips right here in Cincinnati. Or he may send you beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. But if you will go where he calls you and if you will speak for Jesus, God will change hearts. He will purify lips and he will get praise among some of the least likely people. It may not be fast, it may be slow, but God will work. You may feel sometimes as you're sharing Christ like Ruth as she labored out in the harvest fields, just gathering a few heads of grain here and there. But if you're working in the great Redeemer's field, he will be sure to leave out a few stalks for you to pick up. Your toil is not in vain in the Lord. For the word of the Lord is sure in Zephaniah 3.10. From beyond The rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings.